0: Hey, Shield listeners, this is Eric Edelman. Before we start this week's show, I want to give you a heads up that while we were recording uh, Shield of the Republic this past week, we lost some of Elliot's audio with about 15 minutes left in the show. But because the content of our guest, Phillips O'Brien, was so interesting, we wanted to make sure you got to hear all of his responses even though you may not be able to hear all of Elliot's questions as we get towards the end of the show. Thanks for bearing with us, and we'll be back next week, hopefully without any audio or video uh, issues. Thanks so much for listening to Shield of the Republic. Elliot Cohen, the Robert E. Osgood Professor of Strategy at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies and the Arleigh Burke Chair in Strategy at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Elliot, our last uh, episode was a upbeat, positive you know, episode, but here we are today on the day that we've learned about Alexei Navalny's death slash murder. Uh, by the Russian authorities, and it's hard for me to be upbeat and positive about that.
1: Yeah, well, I don't blame you, Ooh, and uh, I share your, I share your feelings. I mean, one, I think, in fact, what we should be very clear is one way or another, this is murder, right? Now, whether it was that they, you know, uh, gave him an injection of something or poisoned him in some way, uh, or I, I don't know what, but it, it is, it is murder. I, I have to say. I actually lean to the interpretation that they that this was quite calculated, doing it now, uh, letting the world know pretty quickly that it had happened, not pretending that there was a prolonged illness or something of that kind. And I think it's a uh, the implications of it are quite scary because I think what it and are intended to be it's uh, Putin very deliberately. Showing people, yeah, we can do this, and uh, I can do this, and I can get away with it, and I can do it to you too, and there's a um, it just a, a what's the word that I'm looking for, uh, a kind of brazenness, yeah, about it that I think is very much in keeping with a sort of a thuggish jail cum secret police personality, don't you think?
0: Yeah, I mean, apparently, I don't know that I've seen this that confirmed anywhere, but I, I saw somewhere, it might have been Christo Grozov, uh, Bellingcat, who said that apparently the press release announcing from the prison service announcing his death uh, came out literally uh, two minutes after the uh, time of death listed on the death certificate. Right. So they they, they were, co- I mean, if that's true, they were cocked and loaded, you know, and ready to, to go, you know. So as you say, whether this was, you know, whether they, you know, actively did something to kill him today or whether this was just the result of his being, his health being um, uh, badly deteriorated during the time that he's been in this strict regime. Prison camp in the Arctic since December, uh, you know, weakened his body. I mean, it, you know, it's, in the end, it's like a distinction without a difference.
1: Yeah, well, but I, I, I do think um, it does make a. Uh, maybe I disagree with you a little bit. I think it does make a difference if it was a a brazen murder committed right. while everybody watched uh you know just kind of flipping the middle finger at the americans at the europeans at everybody else uh seeing what i can get away with it's you know i i'm i'm frequently reminded of um, one of george orwell's essays where he talks about the goose step and he says you know the goose step is it's a really ugly step for a uh you know for, for a military unit and he said it, it deliberately kind of conjures up the image of a boot smashing into a face. Mm. He says, and that's the whole point. Yeah. It's ugly. Right. And it's designed to say, you don't dare laugh at me, do you? Right. And yeah. and I think that's what we're dealing with. It, it is a generally, uh fascistic kind of regime. Now, it's not completely fascist, because I don't think that they're a- actually able to pull that off, although I think they're trying. You know, if you look at the uh, kind of martial patriotic uh, indoctrination that, that's going on. If you look at the real suppression of even the kind of phony uh, opposition that they've had in the past, you know, deciding that you're not going to let anybody run who might actually be construed as being anti-war. Uh, uh, and, and I think it suggests that, you know, there's also some deep insecurities. But I think yep. this was yep. this was intended to be a message to the West. and And I'm sure a message... Domestically as well. I mean, we should never assume that all the messages are simply addressed to us. I think his his primary concerns still have to be internal.
0: Uh, No, I don't disagree with that, and I I don't really disagree with what you were saying earlier. I the the point I was trying to make and probably didn't do it very well is that whether they you know made a, a you know positive decision to kill him today or whether he died because of the way they mistreated him, it's political murder. You know. Either way. I mean, that was really the point I was trying to make. Um, But I I agree with you. I, you know, as I might have said in an earlier, you know, uh, part of my career, you know, it's not by accident, comrade, uh, that this comes on the heels of Donald Trump's, you know, statements about, you know, let Putin do whatever the hell he wants to NATO members and Tucker Carlson's, you know, ongoing you know, self-abasement at the feet of, you know, not just Putin, but, you know, of all these sort of Slavophile, uh, you know, Russians. I mean, his, his little mini videos, you know, of going to the Moscow subway and uh, going to a grocery store uh, and, and attacking the United States while he's there, by the way, and saying that, you know, yeah. Russians are so much better off. I mean, you know, uh, I cannot tell you how much my wife was outraged by this, having lived in, in Moscow for, uh, two years, uh, with, with me when we were serving in the U S embassy there that, you know, it's so ludicrous. Um, you know, it, it is the, you know, it, it um. It gives useful idiots a bad name.
1: Well, I mean, I, I think again, I, I'll take it darker. Um, I think set aside what he's saying about Russia, because in a way, that doesn't matter. You know, he if if it would suit his purposes, he would say the same thing if he, uh, you know, were visiting uh, Mexico or you know uh, Paraguay or Botswana or Bulgaria or, you know, any country on earth, uh, or Cuba. I mean, would would it Hungary, Hungary, but I think the point is what it says about, uh, his view of the United States and what some of the currents are, because, you know, people like Tucker Carlson are, you know, they know what they're pandering to. It's not, it's, I don't think he would be saying these things if he knew that it didn't give a bit of a thrill to some part of his audience. And uh, it's a very dark message. I mean, the thing that was in some ways more disturbing than all of that is that he, I guess, very shortly after the Navalny death, uh, you know, he's on a stage and somebody's saying, you know, well, this is, yeah, you know, he's been murdered by Putin. He's well, all leaders kill people. Some people kill more, some people kill less. And and I think what that it you know it's revealing is on what we used to call the conservative side, it's not conservative, it's something else in the United States. There is a deep, dark, cynical, nihilistic, um angry. Uh, kind of hateful attitude towards the United States, among other things, to the values the country was founded on, uh, to rule of law, to, you know, all the things that keep us going. So I I actually find this actually quite quite chilling. Not I mean, he's, it's ludicrous what he's saying about Russia. Right. And I don't know whether or not he's smart enough to know that, no, this isn't the real Russia. Uh, but that's not the point. The point is, what is it saying about his view of the U.S.?
0: Yeah, I agree. And But it's also, again, to talk about the inversion from Reaganite uh, Republicanism, you know, Reagan famously, you know, invade against moral equivalence, you know, that somehow the United States was just another great power, the Soviet Union was another great power, all great powers do, you know, do bad things. And now we've got, you know, Tucker Carlson essentially uh, engaged in precisely that kind of um, moral, not just moral equivalence. Actually, saying, you know, our adversary is better than we are. It's 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 really awful.
1: Maybe, I mean, you and I can remember a time when uh, there were people who thought that communism, in some way, was attractive. Um, we're not old enough to remember a time, but there was a time when fascist ideologies were attractive too and and were compelling in a certain way. Now, different kinds of fascist ideologies, but they're real. Um, and they did have a certain kind of purchase in this country in the 20s and 30s. Uh, we forget that now, but we shouldn't forget that. And, you know, they were dangerous, and we're living in a dangerous time. Now, maybe we should talk about this later. I mean, I'll, if I could connect that to a, a another rant... Um which would be about the Republicans in Congress having decided to give themselves a two week recess while the Ukrainian defenders of Advidka are being slaughtered because they don 't have enough shells, the Israelis are hanging out there the Taiwanese are hanging out there, but it 's the height of irresponsibility and 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 after what they think of as their major accomplishment, which is Impeaching by one vote a cabinet secretary who you know is implementing a policy they disagree with, but is not breaking the law, and and then the guy who masterminds it announces that he's quitting Congress because he's accomplished his uh, you know, the most important thing he could do, which is this ridiculous impeachment. I mean, it's I I I am just disgust isn't the word. Um, it, it's just there's something outrageous about it.
0: Well, as depressing as all that is, um, we now get to turn to our uh, special guest to talk about the situation uh, on the battlefield in
1: Ukraine. Uh, Elliot, would you like to introduce our special guest this week? I would be delighted. Um, Phil O'Brien is a professor at St. Andrews for his sins. He's uh, the head of school, as they say, of the... uh, uh, there goes at the School of International Affairs film. Uh, International um, relations. He's a very good friend uh, or collaborator on a project. We may have an opportunity to talk about a little bit. Um, Is just to give you, by way of background, a uh, he's a, he's had the good taste to be from the Boston area, so uh, that's already a uh, a good indication of character. Uh, a uh, terrific scholar. In, in the podcast thus far, we've a number of times invoked the name of Zara Steiner one of the truly great international historians of the 20th century. And Phil was a student of Zara's. Um, He's written a number of books. I think the two that really stand out, which I warmly commend to everybody, uh, are ones called How the War Was Won, which is a somewhat revisionist account of World War II, um, which I think has colored his observations about the Ukraine war and another one which um, I liked as much, and in some respects even better, uh, uh, called "The Second Most Important Man in the World." It's a biography of William Leahy, who Admiral William Leahy, who was uh, Franklin Roosevelt's chief of staff, and who Phil argues, I think, extremely convincingly was was indeed the second most important man in the world. Uh, a lot of our listeners will know Phil, though not. Less because of those things, uh, though they're probably aware of them, but uh, because he's been a prolific, and accurate, uh, and passionate commentator on the war in Ukraine, uh, he writes regularly for The Atlantic. I'm glad to say, uh, but he also has a wonderful Substack, which again I, I commend to everybody, which is very very widely read. And he has a uh, he has a podcast too. So, um, Phil, welcome from. St. Andrews, uh, it's great to have you with us. And a forthcoming book. Oh, it's great to be here. And a forthcoming book. Actually, do you want to say something about the
2: book? I mean, the book is going to be out this summer. It's called The Strategist. And it looks at the First World War era experiences of Churchill, Roosevelt, Hitler, Stalin, and Mussolini, all of which had sort of very interesting exposures to war in very different ways. And then how they take that experience and they use it and you might say they're informed by it in how they behave in the second world war so it's a sort of strategic biography looking at the five of them great uh, by looking at their first world war experiences and then saying okay this is how they view war And and they're very consistent in many ways you can see what churchill what roosevelt what hitler do in the second world war is very much comes from their experiences hitler being a uh, uh, infantry soldier uh, on, on the Western Front, Roosevelt being a political person on the rise, Churchill being both at the front, and then very interestingly, minister of munitions. And all of these things play a role in, in, in how they, they do things, and Mussolini being a bullshit artist.
1: So all, all of this, um, uh, in a way, sets up my, the first question that I wanted to ask you, which is, I mean, here you are a, a distinguished historian of the, particularly of World War II, uh, you know, stretching back a little bit earlier in the 20th century as well. And yet somehow you've gotten deeply engaged in writing about Ukraine. Uh, you've been there. Um, you really have been you know, prolific and have decided views about it. How, how did that come about,
2: Phil? It came about because I was really confused by how people were speaking about a Russian invasion of Ukraine before February 24th, 2022. Anyone, Elliot, like yourself, who is a historian, know war goes off the rails, they're confusing, they're chaotic, they're not usually decisive. I mean, that that war is usually a disaster in many ways and goes very much wrong. And for a country like Russia, that's not economically powerful, that is not a technological leader, the chance of it being a catastrophe are far larger. And yet everyone was talking about Russia being super strong and as if this war would be over in a few days and Ukraine would be steamrolled. And none of that seemed to be borne up by any historical experience we've seen. And so I think I was just troubled by the way people were talking about war. And so I just started saying that, that... This makes no sense. Ukraine is not going to be steamrolled in three days that the Ukrainians don't want to be Russians. They're going to fight. And we need to understand that this is almost certainly going to be a catastrophe if it's unleashed. And that's that's how it happened. And there was this chorus of every not of lots of other people. Unlike yourself, thankfully, Elliot actually reached out to me very much at the beginning of the war. And we started corresponding because we were of the same mindset. But there was this whole group of people who were talking about this war as if it would be decisive and quick and easy. And it just seemed to me barking mad, if you don't mind me using a phrase. And that's how I got into it.
1: I, I should add one other thing. This is, uh, this is a teaser, not a spoiler alert uh, for our listeners. Uh, Phil and I have been working for the past year on a, a quite an extensive project looking at, wa- at those analyses of the Russian and Ukrainian military. Um, we are in the final stages of preparing a a report. Um, The names are all named in the footnotes. Uh, There'll be some very prominent people who uh, are quoted all the time in the New York Times and the Washington Post, less in the Wall Street Journal, I have to say, um, who will be very, very unhappy at being reminded of the things that they said. But it's, it's, I think, going to be an important piece of work because it, it is important for people to remember what what war is actually like and um to be wary of some of the analyses that get spread widely around uh but maybe what we can do is kind of move to the next step and then uh Eric I know you're a bit under the weather so I'll 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 shoulder most of the the burden here but uh, you should definitely chime in um Phil let's just uh begin with what seems to me to be obvious, which is this is obviously a very, very fraught time. Uh, We don't know what the House of Representatives is going to do. It's terrifying that there's a majority in the House that's in favor of aid to Ukraine. Uh, But because of the politics of the Republican Party, uh, it's uh, entirely conceivable, may even be likely that they won't get it. The first question would be, what happens, in your view, if Uh, The House of Representatives fails in its obligation to look after the national security interests of the United States and does not vote in favor of aid to Ukraine.
2: Well, it sets off a domino kind of reaction that could go a number of different ways. I think it will depend a lot on what the Biden administration does at that point. If the Biden administration is, as it has not been so far in this war, decisive and says, okay, we're going to unfreeze Russian assets, we're going to let you buy material in the US from that, we'll ship it for you, we'll find a way to get get you some aid, then that will probably energize uh, Europeans. and I think that would actually allow Ukraine to, to hold the line where it is now if they can get, I mean, they're going to lose Avdivka and places like that because they simply don't have ammunition. But if the Biden administration, in some sense, finds a way around the block of the house and still can get aid to Ukraine, the Ukrainians should be able to hold the line relatively well without too many major sort of retreats. Uh, and that would be... The probably the optimistic scenario, the pessimistic scenario. And that, so there should maybe be three. The pessimistic scenario is Biden administration, which has been showing a little bit of frustration, actually, and I think lack of commitment to Ukraine, actually, over the last few months, maybe just says, OK, it's not been passed. It's up to you, Ukraine, to see what will happen. And then European states in the bad scenario really run around like chickens with their heads cut off. Because there is no there's no consensus yet in Europe about what to do. There, you might say is a very hardcore in Eastern Europe, Central Europe, and the Nordics and Baltics that really want to fight for Ukraine. We're not quite sure about how Western Europe would be and that Europe would go into chaos. The middle is that the United States sort of trundles along, getting a little bit of aid out of the Biden administration, and Europe actually begins to shoulder more and more of the burden. That will be very tricky for a while for Ukraine because they will not be able to get the kind of weight of fire that the U.S. has been giving them. But if Europe at least does come together, or Europe without Hungary, we might say, or Slovakia, then, and they decide this is an existential thing as states like Finland, Sweden, the Baltics, Poland all believe, they should be able to get enough to Ukraine to limit the retreats. I mean, they're still probably gonna lose some territory uh, in the short term, but then they have to take the American abrogation of American duty as the sign that Europe has to now take over. Uh, And that will be, this will be the moment for Europe. (laughs) Now Europe has not met its moments terribly well over the past 50 years. It's tended not to meet those moments, but maybe this time because it is actually existential for some European states. Uh, and there's far more serious discussions going on behind the scenes now in Europe than there were even months ago. The Europeans are scared, they're not scared, they are maybe facing reality that the United States is not to be trusted as a partner and they need to look after themselves. And uh, So those are the scenarios. Either Biden administration finds a way to deal with it, Europe gets an act together, both good. Biden administration gives up, Europe splits really bad, Biden administration doesn't do much, but Europe gets its act together in the middle. That's probably where I think it's going to go. Is towards that if the Biden administration doesn't aid.
0: Phil, I wonder if you could talk a bit about um, Avdivka. You were saying it. You know, looks like uh, it looks like the Ukrainians are positioning themselves to to retrograde out of Avdiivka. Um, you wrote a lot last year about Bakhmut and about uh, the. Uh, during the siege of Bakhmut, how the Ukrainians were able to really attrit a lot of uh, Russian forces. A lot of that seems to have gone on in Avdivka as well as some of the losses starting in October, you know, a thousand people a day. They just had a press uh, conference yesterday or a press background, or I guess it was at the Pentagon where a senior, unnamed senior official said 315,000 killed or wounded, you know, total number of Russian casualties, which I think is actually lowballing it. I, I, suspect it's higher, probably closer on the order of 400,000, uh, which is I think the number that, uh, that the Ukrainians are carrying and they, their numbers have been pretty good on this. How much damage do you think the, uh, Ukrainians were able to, to do? I mean, it does seem like the Russians have a force of about 50,000 that they've gotten kind of around Avdivka and a lot more equipment, uh, they're using both, uh, artillery and airstrikes. Um, I mean, it, it, presumably once the Ukrainians have sort of straightened their lines and withdrawn, you know, they'll be in a more defensible position, but it doesn't seem like they have done a lot of the entrenching that the Russians did, for instance, after the Kharkiv liberation that made it so tough for the Ukrainians to Uh, you know, to make any headway during the counteroffensive. How do you how do you parse all that out?
2: Well, there's a lot there. I mean, in terms of entrenchment until September, they really were hoping the counteroffensive might end up splitting the Russian line. So they weren't thinking in an entrenchment kind of way. They were thinking in a combined arms maneuver warfare, hopeful kind of way, which didn't work out. So they have started entrenching since then. From what I've heard, it's very much dependent on the local commander. So certain places have entrenched very well certain places, have not, as entrenched as well. Uh, Avdivka, the the issue really seems to be now that they don't have the ammunition. I mean, Avdivka is the kind of place where the Ukrainians, like in Bakhmut, could attrit the Russians, they haven't treated the Russians enormously, because Putin wants to take it for the election. It's a political token for Putin. And like Bakhmut, he wanted to take Bakhmut. That was very important. So he threw everything he could to take Bakhmut. They destroyed Wagner. I mean, Wagner was eradicated as an organization by the attempt to take Bakhmut. And now when it comes to Abdivka, the Russians are willing to suffer almost any loss to take this town. So the Ukrainians would like to, to fight there in a trip, but they can't protect their own troops with defensive fire at this point. What they, you know, As much as they want to attrit the Russians, they also have to protect their own troops now. That this is a real moment for the Ukrainians there's, there's a lot that has to go on about saving Ukrainian troop numbers, retraining, resting. A lot of these troops have been on the front line for a long time. And because they don't have the firepower to really continue to attrit the Russians in Abdivka, uh, the Russians have been able to make advances, again, very slow. These are the advances that you make is, that a human being makes on foot. That's what we're seeing around Abdivka is a human being on foot advance maybe a kilometer a day in certain places, but that now has made the position untenable. And so the, that unless there is a massive infusion of ammunition, which I can't see happening, the, the Ukrainians are probably going to pull out of Divka simply to save their own troop numbers.
1: Let me just shift the perspective a little bit. Um, I mean, there's so many different things I'd like to talk about, but let's start with this one. Um, what... What does Ukrainian victory look like? It, or is it even, even something that is conceivable at this stage?
2: Absolutely. It's, I mean, Ukrainian victory is conceivable if Ukraine is armed in the way that our Ukraine should have been armed. That I mean, Ukrainian victory is, in my own mind, and actually I would say this is shared by a number of Ukrainians that I've talked to who, who know their geopolitics and all of that, Ukrainian victory is the liberation of the legally recognized territory of Ukraine. That is victory. Anything but that means that Putin's wars of expansion have been vindicated, that that you've torn up the post-1991 world, and you have permanent instability. So victory, not only for Ukraine, but I would say for Europe, is basically Ukraine liberating all of its territory as recognized in 1991. That could be done if Ukraine was armed properly. We've we've armed Ukraine in this, in my own mind, very bizarre way to fight close-range land battles. So we've given Ukraine weapons to fight from the front line to maybe 20 or 30 miles behind the front line, which isn't that far. That's most of the weaponry that we've given. Right now, the Ukrainians are showing the most vulnerable part of the Russian occupation is at Crimea. But they don't have the weapons to regularly hit Crimea. They've been able to knock out the Black Sea Fleet through a lot of Crimea. So the Black Sea Fleet is having a huge problem operating around Crimea. If we gave them something to take out the Kerch Bridge, then Crimea is in very big trouble because it's hard to see how the Russians supply it. So, yes, Ukraine can win if we armed Ukraine properly. However, if we're not going to arm Ukraine, still, except for the, the storm shadows and the scalps, not give them long-range weapons, then they're going to have a hard time liberating their charge.
1: Well, let's put, let's put it a little bit differently. Um, could you describe for us how Russia loses?
2: I mean, th- this is where I'm an old-fashioned. <laughs> Russia loses when its army can't function in Ukraine. Um, and and I actually, physically, you need to get the Russian army out of Ukraine. And you do that by, cut, by basically making it unsuppliable in Crimea on the West to begin with. Uh, that you know, if you can cut Crimea, then you end up with Russian forces in Kherson oblast in real big trouble um, because they have quite a tenuous supply line. And you would begin an area of sort of pushing the Russian army out because it can't be supplied. I don't believe this idea of Russia's limitless resources, and this is not true. The Russian economy is not that productive.
1: Well, that that's actually, I think, the, the thing I wanted to draw you out on, uh, and then I, I really would like Eric to comment on this. You know, potentially the Ukrainians, and, and in you know in reality too, in, in many ways, the Ukrainians have had the, the arsenals of the West and even to some extent of uh, parts of Asia at their disposal. Increasingly, what Russia has at its disposal are the arms industries of North Korea, uh, that may not be such a big deal, uh, Iran, which unfortunately is more significant than anybody would have anticipated. And I think it's pretty fair to say that the Chinese are are probably not going to let them lose in a very visible way. That is, you know, they've been increasing the supply of, not of weapons but of the things you need to make weapons, of the things you need to dig trenches, of basically a lot of the supporting technologies which are critical in war. Let's, uh, you know, as long as we've referenced World War II, remember Dwight Eisenhower in his memoirs, when when he says, you know, what were the critical pieces of uh, equipment? He lists five, none of which went bang. I think it was the landing ship tank, the duck the Jeep, uh, the C-47 transport, and the combat bulldozer. Um, None of which, you know, had a gun on them. Or maybe the landing ship tank did, but that's not what they were... They weren't used for that. Uh, They were delivering things ashore. So um, given that that's the geopolitical reality, does that set a limit, in your view, on... The extent to which Russia will be allowed to lose, or um, is it the case, which and this I guess this is more my my view, um, that the way Russia will lose will be at some point it'll just look so futile, so costly, so utterly not worth it that Putin is removed from power. That, that in other words, you can't really have a Ru- Russia lose until Putin goes down.
2: Well, certainly, I don't disagree with that, that um, you need to basically mull the army so badly that the destruction of the Russian army would lead to some kind of political settlement. It has to be some Russian losses and Russian battlefield performance. And I don't know what the two of you think, but when I look at this Russian army, I don't see a perfect military organization. I still see a deeply flawed organization and one which the Ukrainians, if, if armed properly, could take advantage of. So I think we're on the same line. I I tend to think you're going to need some major military defeats uh, unless it's going to go on for a few more years. I mean, Putin seems at this point, having seen off Prigozhin and uh, having these elections to at least be strong enough to fight for another year or two. uh, And though I'm not a Russian expert and I don't want to pretend that I am, I would like to think he'd be overthrown. I can't see that happening. Um, but you know, maybe I'm wrong on that. So I would go for a military defeat of the Russians in the field in probably the second half of 2024 and spending the first half of 2024 treating Russian forces down, letting the Russians attack and try and create the battlefield conditions where the Russians have to, in a sense, make some significant withdrawals. And maybe then we end up with the political situation, which leads to a, a Russians accepting the fact that this war has no good ending for them, and it really doesn't have a good ending for them, if we support Ukraine.
1: Eric, do you want to comment on this?
0: Yeah, I guess what I, you know, what what worries me right now is that the Russians have uh, essentially reconstituted their defense industrial production much more quickly than people had anticipated. I mean, they they've now got you know the budget. Russian state budget is basically forty percent devoted, essentially to d- defense production, and and they're cranking stuff out. I mean, as you said, Elliot, they're you know have been dependent on North Korea and on Iran for artillery and and drones. Um, they've been dependent on the PRC for dual use uh, goods and financing that allows it to come in. Um, but I guess what I'm worried about. You know, is like how do we, you know, get to the long run, as it were? Because uh, you know, I'm not sure it's sustainable for the Russians to be able to produce at that level. But right now, if if the Ukrainians are cut off by the United States and by the total irresponsibility of the U.S. Congress, or at least the House of Representatives, I want to, I want to, you know, I want to doff my hat to Chuck Schumer and and Mitch McConnell for getting the Senate to do the right thing. But you know, I, I worry that there's going to be a period here. You know, Phil was talking about the ammunition shortages that they've had at at Divka. You know, if the Russians are able to, you know, take advantage of this at least, you know, period of time where they're going to be outproducing what the Ukrainians are armed with, I I just worry that, you know, it, it will not
2: not go well. The way I mean, I think we do have to be careful about talking about massive Russian production. They're still far below losses in almost every category. Right. That a usage. So in, in 2022, the Russians fired. I think from generally 10 to 11 million shells were fired by the Russians. They would have lost millions more when all their depots went up in June, July, when the HIMARS appeared. This year, or sorry, last year, 2023, they fired 7 million shells. So they had probably access to 50% of the shells in 2023 that they had in 2022 maybe Russian production is two and a half million shells this year. Maybe. That's sort of the upper estimates, two to two and a half million shells. They're going into the year with, I think, four million in stocks, according to the, to the Estonians. They can't fire everything they have in stock, or literally they run out of shells and the war is over. Right. So even under very optimistic scenarios, Russian fire in 2024 will be down on 2023 and massively down on 2022. So I, in Russian production, normally you think of in a war by the third year, you're drastically outbuilding and providing more than what you had at the beginning of the war. The Russians are still only able to provide a fraction of what they had what they when, they when they into-
0: started. Fair fair enough. But on the other hand, you know, if they're out firing the Ukrainians five to one,
2: it's still... Uh, the, the, That's why we have to, I mean, yes, the European, Ukrainian supporters have to get in and give Ukraine the kinds of things that they can use to take advantage right. of the fact that Russian fire will be down. Um, I mean, it's not, all I'm saying is Russia's not getting stronger. Right. And I think we need to fight against, and the same with tanks, you know, they're, they're only can make a small number compared to what they have lost in massive numbers on the battlefield in tanks and, and armored vehicles. I mean, I have to say, I, you know, I, I didn't see if you had asked me in 2015, would we be here? I would have said, absolutely not. I can't. Really. Yes, there would be trouble in the alliances. But you know, the way NATO actually stepped up to help the United States and Afghanistan made it seem that the alliance certainly had uh, significant uh, legs to it and that it did act together and that there was an understanding on both sides of the Atlantic that the alliance had value. Uh, yes, Europeans have not always paid their their 2%, but the United States has benefited enormously from, from being the leader of NATO in a global sphere. So, I mean, in some sense, I look on what has happened as a tragedy. I mean, it, it is a tragedy. I can't believe it. I can't believe that the language has become so mercenary and so zero-sum when this alliance serves both interests. It serves Europe and it serves the United States, and it has served them incredibly well for... Uh, whatever, 75 years at this point. Uh, on the other hand, I believe this is the most serious crisis in in um, European terms, because they now have to deal with the fact that Trump might get elected in 2024. And they can't pretend that won't happen. And this is the most serious war in Europe since 1945. And for certain states, and as I said, and who are... Very militarily inclined now. This is an existential war. And if they see the United States saying, well, you know, we're, we're not going to go fight for you. And by the way, that rhetoric even started before Trump. There was some people, oh, we're ne- we'd never fight for Poland or Lithuania. I remember Tucker Carlson saying that on Fox. Oh, you know, who do we care about this? Well, they hear that now um, and they see it. We are in an existential war. The United States clearly can't be trusted to defend uh, its role under Article 5, at least this is the European way. And so they are taking it more seriously in parts of Europe than they ever have before. And I don't know if you can get that genie back in the bottle, particularly if Trump wins. I I do think if Trump wins, the alliance is over, Um, that it's hard to see how it survives, just why Europe would ever actually trust the United States again to respect Article 5, unless Trump comes into office and said everything I said in the campaign is wrong. I love NATO and I love Article 5 and I will you know go and do these things, but I find that hard to believe it. And then Europe in some ways has to wake up and smell the coffee and, and start looking after itself. But once it starts doing that, it's hard to see that it will go back.
0: I'm with Phil. I, you know, if Trump is elected, I think it's more or less the you know end of the alliance. I don't you know, that might not be the case formally. You know, there there is legislation that was attached to the last National Defense Authorization Act that says he can't take the U.S. out of the alliance uh, without the approval of Congress, which I don't think he could get but that's also probably an unconstitutional provision because it's a legislative veto and i doubt that if he took it to court that the supreme court would uphold it so but but even without that <clears throat> you know there are a lot of things he can do to to you know make the alliance non-functioning even without actually withdrawing and and you know john bolton mark esper people who You know, whatever you think about them were serious people who tried to do serious things while they were in the Trump administration have both testified to the fact that they think uh, he would take us out of the alliance and and it would in in effect destroy the alliance. So I'm I'm afraid I'm with Phil. I think even creative flattery will not be enough to, you know, to save the save the alliance. Uh,
2: That's what I mean. It's it's potentially so destabilizing this world we're going into that I don't think it could become destabilizing very soon. I mean, say, aid doesn't get through the House and the Biden administration washes its hands. Sorry, nothing we can do. We're done. You know, we've helped Ukraine. We will root you on from the sidelines. But it's up to you now. Dear, to, we're, we're out of the game. And that's a possibility. Well, what happens then? What do states like Poland and the Baltics, do if they see the Ukrainian army rocking back on its heels, do the poles say, "Okay, we're going to have a Russian victory, give Russia time to rebuild, and then come at us in five years' time," or do they say the Russian army's been terribly damaged? Let's help Ukraine even more. I mean, what does the Finns say? The, the the Baltics. This could get very pear-shaped very quickly.
0: Both the Finns and the poles have. Uh... You know drastically increased their own defense budgets and defense production, so uh, they are actually taking it very seriously. Uh, Elliot, I wonder if I could impose on both you and Phil, since you've both written about this, mm-hmm. to talk about the command changes that President Zelensky has made, because that's, I think, uh, many of our listeners are probably you know perplexed about all this. You know, uh, there was a lot of catastrophizing about this at when it was first you know announced that solution was going to be you know relieved of command <clears throat> i mean elliot you've pointed out that you know that this happens in wartime all the time that you know it's not not particularly you know remarkable from that point of view uh, but it was not just the change of you know uh the overall command it was also the land forces command other commands were changed i think five commanders in in toto Could you guys talk a little bit about that? What do you see coming out of this in terms of how the Ukrainians are going to approach the next phase of fighting, you know, putting aside the other imponderables we've been talking about with regard to U.S. assistance?
2: I mean, clearly the zelensky zelensky relationship had deteriorated in the last few months, six months or so, that there was a lot of tension between the two from everything that we have heard, uh, that they broke whatever. They were both trying to protect themselves, both trying to blame the other for the, the failure of the counteroffensive. So the relationship was not working between the two of them. The real issue is probably, well, one, Zeluzhny was loved. When anyone you went to Ukraine, you went to, Zeluzhny was one of the few people um, who had universal. Um, positive remarks. I've never heard anyone say anything critical about zeluzhny He was really a beloved character. And a change had to be made because Zelensky, I think, couldn't work with him. And ultimately, the civilian authority needs to dominate on this. The very controversial thing was picking Sierski as the replacement, because in the way that zeluzhny was loved, Sierski divided opinion. He both had some very strong backers and also some very strong detractors. I don't think there was any Ukrainian officer who divided opinion as much as Siersky did between those who saw him as an old Soviet-style officer and those who saw him as sort of a hard fighter. What seems to have happened is on the one hand, though, I mean, I talked about it with Mikhaila Bielishkov today in our podcast, things have settled down. So the initial shock has worn off. Uh, Zolusjny is definitely still missed, but people now have accepted this is war, and the transition has occurred. I think the junior, well, not junior is the wrong way because they're a very senior officer, but the new senior command under Sierski that has been brought in has, on the whole, been greeted very positively. That there are a lot of successful younger officers who sort of risen up and right, the kinds of one who often do well in war who are younger than normal, but perform well and, and get, get raised up, they, they seem to have been brought into positions of strength. So the immediate crisis has, to a certain degree, passed. Their new team is in place. Uh, the, the crisis has been weathered, but now we have to see whether that command change makes any difference. Uh, so the first part has happened, uh, and we'll see what happens in the second. Well, I mean, it's interesting, what do you get right and what do you get wrong? And I've gotten a lot of things wrong and certain things right. Uh, I mean, that's because I think from the training and, and the way you look at it. I mean, what historians bring is the sense of things not working out, that <laughs> you have to understand that plans go awry, war is a chaotic, dynamic event. It's never going to work out the way all wars are thought they'll be over by Christmas and are never over over for years and that we keep f- failing to lose this lesson so that historians can bring in things about looking over the last few hundred years of warfare and say, well, we need to have a certain balance on how we talk about it. And certain political processes repeat themselves in wars, um, not identically, but they, they they go over and over. Where I sort of, I think maybe, where things got wrong um, is the assumption, I've gotten a few things wrong, and it's generally because I assume people would be rational by my mindset. So I can't believe the United States hasn't armed Ukraine in the way that I would have armed Ukraine, because I'd want to beat Russia. This, to me, is an army that could be beaten. If you look at military history, it's an imperfect body. And yet, for different policy reasons, the administration and now Congress seem to be doing the stupidest things possible. And I just couldn't have imagined they would be, in my mind, so stupid as to to make the choices that they have made. Um, so I think, you know, one, <laughs> I don't know what you know, what 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 we take from it in that way, because certain things we can give a very good perspective on and certain things I've gotten completely wrong.
0: Phil, it was great to have you. Thank you for joining us.